All right. Right now, during this time, we have teachers in the back. We have two age groups. Uh, We have age group four through six, and then we have an age group for the seven through nine-year-olds. So if you have a child that is between the ages of four and six, or between the ages of seven and nine, we want to ask that you let them go to the back. The teachers will meet them in the back, and they're going to go into our, our kids' area time. We're doing an awesome teaching time for our kids through the next three years called the Gospel Project. The Gospel Project is a three-year track that actually take our children through a complete overview of God's Word where they are truly learned, they learn together how the Bible is put together. And so I'm excited and I've been praying for them as they go through this time because it's an amazing opportunity for them at a very early age to connect to the truth of Jesus. Such an awesome opportunity. So we want to pray for our kids. Uh, Be praying for our children as they're in the back during this time learning uh, from God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word in some form, I want to ask you if you would join me in Luke chapter 20. You should be getting some, some creases and some wrinkles in Luke. We've spent some time walking through Luke, and it's such an incredible descriptive narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only the descriptive narrative, but it is an incredible teaching of what it is that is the apex of the Bible, that the gospel stands by itself, elevated, that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, everything after, after Jesus' death and resurrection points back to Jesus, and everything is, elevates Christ And we get the chance to read about that, the completing of it. And so when we gather each week, I am reminded, and this is not like this false humility thing, I'm I'm truly reminded and overwhelmed at how God is doing some incredible things through our faith family. We have been truly blessed by God. He has allowed us to see and experience things in five short years that we had only dreamed and wished and hoped he would choose to do through us because it's his word. And the honest truth is that the power, the power behind this is not in our creativity, it's not in our method, it's not in our talents, it's not in our approaches, but it is 100% attributed to God desiring to do a work through his people in such a way that he alone is glorified and he alone is honored and where he gets all of the credit. So if you're new to the venue and maybe this is your first time to visit, when we gather together each week, our heart's desire is for you to connect to God at a level where you, you experience his power and he, you are changed by him. Not you are changed by our experience together, but you are changed by him. And our own strength as leaders of this church, we can only transform people to a pattern of morality. We can only transform people to a pattern of religion, but we cannot transform your heart. Only God can do this. So in order to see your heart radically transformed, that that requires the Holy Spirit and God's mercy and God's grace. And so by design, our desire is not to, to draw a crowd through anything other than humbly submitting ourselves before God in complete reliance that he will respond and we will be transformed by him. 
So now this is not a comparison of approaches and techniques. This is simply the way in which we believe God has led us to get our stuff out of the way because we know that in the end, what you really need is the power of God to change you. There is great power at work when God's people humble themselves before him. Admit our full reliance on him, our absolute dependence on him, and we worship him for doing a work in us that we can never fabricate or accomplish on our own. And so this morning, when we come into this next passage in Luke, we are going to see different ways in which we come to God by seeing his exchange that he has with several people who were coming to Jesus on different terms. And the question which will resonate through each encounter that we will see this morning, that is a question that I think we must all ask ourselves today as followers of Jesus is this. What is the cost of following Jesus? What is the cost of following Jesus? Or maybe maybe I could ask it in a better way or another way. Maybe the question that we need to ask this morning is what price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? What is the price that you are willing to pay to follow Jesus on his terms? The price for following after Jesus has been clear since the very first calling of the very first disciples of Jesus. Four guys, common, ordinary guys, were standing with the sea as their backdrop in the first century. Commercial fishermen. And Jesus walks up to them and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we've heard this story, and we have read this story, and we have colored a thousand color sheets as kids with this story. And we have spoken about it to the point that we have been numbed and we have been desensitized to the magnitude of what Jesus was calling these common people to. He was calling them to give up everything to follow him. Everything. He was calling them to leave their jobs, their possessions, their plans, their families, their safety, their security. He called them, by him calling and saying, follow me, he was calling them to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus. Jesus would over and over and over again say that if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now for a first century Jew, they knew quite well what was meant by taking up your cross. They knew very vividly what this calling meant for them to take up their cross They knew that to take up your cross was a calling to die. And though we know this to be a calling to to die to self for many of the disciples, it resulted in a literal calling to die, a literal death for the sake of following Jesus. But here is the unbelievable part. They believed that taking up their cross and following Jesus and dying to self was worth it. 
they knew that this meant it, they would go into uncharted areas. They knew that this meant absolute uncertainty. But they said Jesus was worth the price. You know, Jesus had a terrible church growth plan. I mean, we attempt in church growth to issue a calling on the lives of people that is built around a desire for them to come back to our churches, to come and hang with us. But here Jesus says, you know, hey guys, so I'm Jesus, and I want you to follow me. Just No, no leave all your stuff there. Well, you can say things to your family later. You, you come and you follow me, and we're going to be homeless, okay? So we're going to wander. Don't know really where we're going. He knew. He didn't tell them. And he says, I want you to lose your life for the sake of following me. And they say, I can do that. Where'd I sign up? And they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. The disciples believed that in Christ they had found something more satisfying and more worthy and more meaningful than anything that they could possibly gain from anything in this life. And they said, I'm willing to abandon it all for the sake of following this man. Yet somehow over the last 2,000 years, we have wandered away from this calling to total abandonment. Through shifting cultural trends and church techniques, we have minimized the calling of Christ to be a part of our weekly schedule, to be an aspect of our culture. Is this the intent that God had for his followers based on the calling that he placed in their life early on? Does this resemble the calling that Jesus placed on his disciples to give their life for following him? You know, how did we lose the calling to take up our crosses and follow Jesus? Churches, especially in the Western world, are overflowing with people who claim a relationship with Christ, yet who are perfectly happy with an infrequent association with him made up of a pursuit for an intellectual connection on the things about him, and maybe by being social with him through Christian things, and yet a very loose connection with him. And now I don't believe that this was done intentionally. I don't believe that philosophically the desire of the Western church was to lead people down a road that was different from the road in which Jesus called his disciples. But I believe that in an attempt to reach people for Jesus, we may have ran the risk of leading them to be disciples of religion, to be disciples of a church, but not Jesus Christ. Issuing a calling that is not the calling that Jesus issued. David Platt said this in his book, Follow Me. He said, with good intentions, and sincere desires to reach as many people as possible for Jesus, we have subtly and deceptively minimized the magnitude of what it means to follow him. We've replaced challenging words from Christ with trite phrases in the church. We've taken the lifeblood out of Christianity and put Kool-Aid in its place so that it tastes better to the crowds, and the consequences are catastrophic. 
He said, multitudes of men and women at this moment think that they are saved from their sins when they are not. Scores of people around the world culturally think that they are Christians when biblically they are not. So this morning, I want us to see Jesus in his interaction with three different groups of people. See what he calls us to as his followers and heed the warning. Rather, answer the call to follow Christ by accepting the cost. So in Luke 20 is where we pick up. Luke 20 beginning with verse 27. So Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been questioned. Jesus has been attacked. Though even last week we saw he was attacked, uh, attempted to be attacked very bluntly at first. Then they come with flattery. They're saying, you know, Jesus, you can answer this question. And they just come to him with these flattery words. But then Jesus is on the offensive. He has told them he is king. He has come into Jerusalem on the donkey. He has cleaned the temple. He has set up camp in the temple to teach. And he said, I do this by, he said, I don't have to tell you what authority I do this by. He asked him this question and they try to trick him. Jesus preaches completely with authority because the father had given it to him. And now we see him interact with three different groups. Look at verse 27. So there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. I'll explain that in a moment. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven of the brothers left no children and died. Well, after this, afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this. Tell you a little bit about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were in a religious league of their own. So we've looked at the Pharisees. We've seen some of the, how the Gentiles contrasted with them, even in the temple courts. courts. But the Sadducees, they were very wealthy. And they were actually controlling of the high priesthood that they had actually purchased, the family had purchased it uh, from Rome. So they were an extremely tight-knit group of people as of mixed of lay leaders as well as priestly leaders. They were just mixed together. And the Sadducees would have already been a little aggravated with the audacity of Jesus because they also controlled the marketplace. So the place in which Jesus had gone in and flipped the tables up and said, you're not gonna do this. This is a house of prayer, not a place for you to gain profit by taking and abusing the Gentiles. So they were already upset because he had disrupted not only their spiritual economy, but the literal economy by which they were helping to make profits for their group. And so the Sadducees had become theological materialists. Their extent of knowledge of God was strictly in theological knowledge. They rejected the providence of God as being active in life. They believed that everything was up to man. They didn't believe that God was active in life at all. Now, what made them just a little bit different than what we see of Pharisees and some of the other religious teachers of that time was that they actually rejected the oral traditions that were so popular with the Gentiles, excuse me, the Pharisees. 
so popular with the Pharisees. And they only, the Sadducees only affirmed the books of the Bible that were written by Moses. So if Moses was not attributed to being the author, they rejected the teachings. So they come to Jesus with this question. Because in their study of the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible that Moses was accredited to writing, they found nothing that referenced resurrection. And yet Jesus had been teaching and teaching about a resurrection from the dead and about how he would die one day. It had been prophesied. They knew the prophecy. They rejected it. They knew that Isaiah said how he would come and be rejected but would rise again. He knew the prophecy, but they didn't believe it. And so they come to Jesus with this question, and they ask him a legit question for them. Because based on the teaching that Jesus had given on marriage uh, that they didn't like or agree with, and so for them this question was rooted in what they knew was instructions from Leviticus. So Jesus had taught about marriage. He talked about how how, the, how, how, we, the, the, how marriage was to happen. And, and he talked about it and compared it to the resurrection. And so they come with him with this question. Because in Leviticus, which was a book that they accepted, it said if a man's brother dies childless, then he has to marry the widow as a way to preserve the family line and maintain the wealth of the family. So they had a genuine question for Jesus. You see this in... In the, in the story of Ruth and Boaz and the kinsman redeemer, you see this law of Leviticus played out. And so they had a genuine question for Jesus that was actually a secondary issue from the primary issue that Jesus was addressing in the temple. You see, Jesus was going after the hearts of those who opposed him. Yet they constantly attempted to make it about other things than the root of the problem. So they're coming to him. Jesus has attacked their hearts and, and showed them the truth that he is the Messiah. And yet they want to come and ask a question. I need a little clarity from Leviticus. Because I believe that you know, if, if he marries seven times, when he gets, I mean, who, who she, this is going to be awkward. She's going to get up there. There's going to be seven husbands. Which one is she going to be with? No kids. But let's keep reading and see how Jesus replies. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry And are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Now I think the point of this passage is not to try and define whether or not we will be married in heaven, okay? There's definitely books that talk about that and this passage alludes to this, but I don't believe that that's the main thrust of this passage. You know, when I read those scriptures, some of you squeeze your spouse's hand and say, Man, I really hope we're married in heaven. You know, other, others of you may be going, freedom! <laughs> but let's not miss in this contextual flow what Jesus is attempting to do here. Jesus says, wait a minute, guys. He says the Torah actually does reference the resurrection of the dead. I can see them going, really? Now, wait a minute, we're scholars. Because they lean so heavily on the teachings of Moses... Jesus, not having to offer an explanation, but says Moses actually does talk about the dead being raised. When at the scene of the burning bush, he calls God the Lord of Abraham, 
and the Lord of Isaac and the Lord of Jacob. So he's speaking to Moses and he says, in that passage, if you remember, it's like he's going back to the Torah and he says, in that passage, if you remember, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He doesn't say that he was the God of Abraham. He doesn't say that he was the God of Isaac and was the God of Jacob, but that he is their God. Now, this was powerful to them. This was powerful to the point that they said, we're, great answer, and we're done. Let's just disconnect this question answer. Because they knew what happened just a minute ago. You remember the guys who approached Jesus with a question, and they were like disconnected, and he said, no, let's talk about something else while we're talking about it. Well, Sadducees said, we're good, we're good. Now, this was powerful because, but with, with, their, with their question answered, with their question answered, why didn't they then believe? They had no more questions to ask Jesus. He had opened their eyes to theological truths and answers about these secondary questions they had, but they remained blinded to the spiritual truth. He answered them so well that they didn't dare ask him another question. And I believe we see that the answer to Christ then is not more knowledge. It's not all of our questions being answered. But it's addressing the issue that lies in the depths of our hearts. And so I find in this story a common theme that I see so many times in the lives of people And that we often condition the calling to completely follow Jesus with our entire being based on if he can answer things about life circumstances, questions we may have. We often say, I cannot submit to you, God, because of this unanswered question that I have. I could completely submit everything to you if you could just answer all of these unanswered theological questions that I have. And Jesus, yet, is confronting your heart. He is confronting where you stand with him. And instead of dealing with that reality, we will divert the issue at hand onto some other question to avoid dealing with the heart issue. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, Sadducees, I know where you're going with this, but I'm talking about your heart right now. He said, for your sake, I'm going to answer this question. But the answering that question, it does not answer the question of the heart. I'm going about your heart right now. And so what ends up happening is we end up refusing to follow Jesus because we have this thing over here that we refuse to let go. But Jesus doesn't stop at their question, but he continues. Look at this in verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus goes on a little further and says, look, you will all believe that David was a king, right? Yeah, David was king. And that the Messiah would come from his line, and I am biologically from the line of David. And David referred to me as Lord. David referred to me as Lord in a way of speaking about a king. So Jesus is delivering a simple message here to them. And that is that since we're on this topic, guys, let me remind you that David called me Lord. So while we're denouncing me as the Messiah, let's remember that David 
King David that everybody knows, that I came from his line, Isaiah said I would, and he referred to me as Lord. But then Jesus would turn his attention to the second group. So we've been dealing with the Sadducees, the first group unwilling to pay the price to follow Jesus because of secondary issues and unanswered questions. But then the next group unwilling to pay the price to follow Jesus because of spiritual blindness. Look at uh, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Now Jesus would call somebody out. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, listen, while we're on the topic, beware of the scribes. Be warned against the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts. But they're also the same ones who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So the scribes get raked over the coals just like the Sadducees. A scribe during this time was known as being a biblical scholar. You could always tell a scribe because he would walk around, you could tell by his dress, they wore these long white linen robes with long fringes that would reach down to their feet. When they walked by, people would rise out of respect. They were very respected people for their knowledge. When they walked by people, they would rise, they would greet them by saying rabbi or master or father. They would always be invited as kind of like eye candy at feasts, like they were just kind of like a dignitary you'd want at the head table. If you were having a big feast, you'd want a scribe up there. He was well-respected socially and religiously. But yet Jesus exposes them for who they are. Men who had a theological knowledge of God, yet a life that was far from him. These guys would take advantage of widows by offering legal aid for them at some crazy price, which was illegal. They were taking advantage of widows. They would mismanage the widow's properties who had dedicated themselves to the service in temple. They would accept money in exchange for special prayers, these long prayers. And Jesus said, beware of people like this. They speak truth. Jesus didn't deny that they didn't know theologically the answers. But he said they have a life that doesn't line up with it. They give lip service to God with their mouth but deny him with their life. You know, the calling to follow Christ is a calling to abandon image and self and reputation and anything that we bring to the table and rests fully in the finished work of Jesus. And these guys were unwilling to follow the calling of Jesus. They trusted so much in their own ability to earn righteousness through their self-image and knowledge that they couldn't see the calling that the literal Messiah was extending right in front of them. But then Jesus would have a walking example of the dangers he had exposed in the scribes and Sadducees and we see the third person. If you look in Luke 21. So Jesus is addressing Sadducees and he's addressing the scribes and he has put the Pharisees down and he has exposed the practice of worship of other things in the temple. And then this lady walks in. And Jesus looked up in verse one and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow and she went and put two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty 
put in all she had to live on. Now, when you read this text, what do you assume we're going to be talking about? Money. That you need to give more. This is always the text that uh, if you're going to be having a budget talk pretty soon, you want it to land in this text. You can say, look, you need to give everything you have monetarily like the widow did. And to be quite honest, in the context of this passage exists, I know it's been taught that way, but I don't think that's what this passage is about at all. This passage is not about money at all. The widow did not boost the temple budget that day. If, it, if this passage were about giving more, we could look at the wealthy and all they brought and say, you need to pour it in. But I believe this passage is about the heart issues that Jesus had been teaching in the temple. It's about the willingness to pay the price for following Jesus. And it just happens to be told through the story of a widow who only had two copper coins that she gave, but it was everything. Jesus knows that if he gets your heart, he will get your money. His illustration here is not about bringing your money. If that was the case, his illustration would have been drowned out by the noise of the coins hitting the offering boxes from the wealthy. In the temple, there would be, at at this time, especially around Passover, people would be bringing tons of offerings. There would be these 13 offering boxes in the temple called trumpets. And obviously, people would sit around and watch. Jesus is seeing them come in. It's a public thing. And in it, you would bring your offerings for the temple. You might bring offering for the wood sacrifice. You might bring uh, money for incense, and you'd put that in the incense box. You would, they would have animals for sacrifice. You'd put that in the turtle dove box. You would have all these temple uh, boxes that you could. And so you can imagine at the Passover, the feast, feast the crowds were, were overwhelming. And the parade of the wealth to the brass trumpets to dump in their goods would have been like a parade. And yet in the middle of all of this, False parade of submission, Jesus' gaze is fixed on a poor widow who brought nothing but brought everything. Her only motivation for such giving could only be love. She had counted the cost. When she dropped the two coins into the mouth of the trumpet, they made no noise. They brought no attention from the crowds. They drew no attention from anyone but Jesus. The temple was no more richer, but she was by the world's standards maybe even poor because she gave absolutely everything she had. But we see her heart. She was silently and sacrificially saying to God, I love you. Here's everything I have. It's not much. But here is everything that I have. And Jesus sitting there as he's teaching about giving up everything. He goes, yes, that's it right there. What I've been trying to tell you has just been demonstrated. What, what's, what Jesus, we didn't hear a noise. We heard no loud clamor from the coins being dumped in from the wealthy. And Jesus says, that little lady has shown you what I am trying to teach you. He said, you give a lot, of, lot to me, it appears on the surface, but you've given out of your abundance. But this widow has counted the cost and realized that it was worth everything. And yet we so often look like the wealthy. 
We come to God with our abundance, with what is left over. And we come to him spiritually and we say, here you go, Jesus. Here's, here's a little Bible study for you. There you go. How about that prayer life, Jesus? I'll give you a little of that too. I attended five Bible study groups this week. Is that good? You know, I had a little extra time, so I called a couple extra ones this week. And Jesus says, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The posture of this widow and the eternal weight of her small offering crushed the massive load of the rich that day. So what is it that Jesus wants us to gather from this passage? What do we take from this? What do we need to do with this? In closing, I want to offer you just a couple of things. When we look at the true calling of Christ, is he worth the price to pay? The first thing I think we can see from this is that the posture of our hearts defines our motivation. The posture of our hearts defines our motivation. God sees past the outward and knows you intimately and knows you deeply and knows if he has your heart or not not about the things you give or things you do or what the outward appearance look like those happen but we cannot fabricate righteousness and holiness righteousness is found when we abandon it all to the king righteousness is in Christ alone Paul wrote similar words to the church in Corinth about how our love for Christ is all that matters he says in chapter 13 if I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body up to be burned but I have not love I gain nothing I've done nothing. Jesus is calling you today to follow him. Is it worth it to you? Truly ask yourself, is following Jesus worth it to me? Let's put all of the secondary issues aside. Let's put all of the theological questions aside that we want answered before we come to him. And let's look directly at the heart. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't and won't be answered. I'm just saying that they are secondary issues. If you are a searcher for, and, and you don't know Jesus, the question that I want you to consider is, is Jesus who he said that he was? That's primary. Because then if Jesus is who he says that he was, then we can answer the secondary questions with that truth and knowledge that he is who he says that he is. If he's not, so be it. But the question, the Sadducees could not just come to him. They had to come with him with these questions. But Jesus says, the only question that I ask when you come to me is, am I who I said that I am? C.S. Lewis says, you got to make your choice. He said, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. We come and answer the question, Jesus, is is he who he says that he is? If God is not real, and if Jesus didn't do what he said, he did for your sin, then who's going to save you? Yourself? 
your actions. This is an issue of eternity, not knowledge or theological answers apart from is Jesus who he said that he is and did Jesus do what he said he did. So what is the posture of your heart? Luke 12, 34 says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be at also. So actually, the question that we may should be asking is what do you treasure? What do you treasure? Because you could say, oh, my heart's for Jesus. But then you treasure different things. And this scripture tells us that where your treasure is there, your heart's gonna be. So believers, what motivates you? Is it guilt? Is it obligation? Is it tradition? Or is it a heart that burns for Jesus? Is he your treasure? Christianity is like no other religion in the world. When Jesus came on the scene and called his disciples to him, he did not say, follow these rules or observe these regulations or duties or pursue this path in order to find me. No, Jesus said, follow me. And your heart is the posture of your heart, reckless abandonment for the sake of following Jesus. That is the calling of Christ. Secondly, the pursuit of God demands a price. I don't know how better to soften that or to take away, curve the edges of that. The scripture says the pursuit of God will cost you something. Now, I'm not pretending this morning that being obedient to Christ is always the easiest thing in the world, okay? I am not naive enough, nor is scripture deceptive enough to cause you to believe that the cost of following Jesus is not costly. It is very costly. Jesus says it requires the laying down of your lives. Now, for most of us in our lifetime, this means that we lay down our lives in the sense that we lay down all aspects of our life before the feet of Jesus as a blank check that he can fill in. I'll be honest with you, there are often times when I don't lay it all down for him. I let things rob my heart and my attention. I want to do what I want. This is human nature, but Jesus says that there is a price. Now, this is nothing new that Jesus had sprung on the crowds. In Luke 14, Jesus had great crowds following him everywhere. And it would appear that Jesus was crushing it in accomplishing his mission because people are following like crazy. But check this out. Jesus' desire was never to gather a crowd. His desire was to gather faithful followers who would abandon all for following him. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 28, he says, Which of you that desires to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going into battle will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I, he said it. For many in our world today, the cost of following Jesus will one day result in their literal death. Do you realize that? We live in the Western world protected, but do you realize there are people every day globally that are literally losing their physical life on this world because they believe that Jesus is worth it. Paul would say it. Paul would say, when, he's, when he was being in prison and threatening death, he'd say, look, I'm gonna, as long as I'm living this for Christ, if you kill me, that's even better. Get to be with him. 
So there is a price. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is much wiser than me, said this. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So I ask you this morning, what is the price that you are willing to lay down your life? To say, God, this is, it's all yours. We have been so graciously gifted by God to be in a place where this has not been a literal lay down our life calling. But Jesus has said, I want you to lay your life down to follow me. That's what it means to be my disciple. There's the last thing. And that is the promise of God determines our priorities. And we ask ourselves, is he worth it? Is he worth it? He says that he is enough, but yet often our priorities will show if he really is or not. Remember in Luke 18, Jesus says to his disciples shortly after the rich young ruler had left the presence of Jesus because of his inability to abandon his possessions to follow Jesus. Jesus says that there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What will you place your priority on? We don't place God first and then family second and then job third and order everything behind him. Christ is the hub in which everything in our life should find its purpose and meaning. He should be at the center of every attribute of our life. Is this your kingdom priority? Jesus asks a question to you this morning. He says, what is the price that you are willing to pay to follow me? Now, this does not mean that we don't enjoy life. This does not mean that you don't have happiness. This does not mean that you don't do things of the world. This just means you you do them with a different flavor because they have purpose behind them. Because you are leveraging them for the kingdom. Because you are enjoying them because you recognize that they are gifts from Jesus, not anything that you have fabricated on your own. It gives life so much more color and meaning to walk with this understanding that all that we experience, both good and bad, comes from the gracious extension of God's hand who has said, if you come after me and follow me. Not only is it denial of self, but he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you walk through dark times, you will walk with me. When you walk through the joys of life, you will celebrate with me. So the question we ask this morning, are we willing to pay the price to follow him? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for...